Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. We had about 24 commissions of captains and commanders starting out in 1777 in the Continental Navy. Wicks was uh, number 11 on the seniority list. Uh, interestingly, uh, number 18 was a guy named uh, John Paul Jones. That's Richard Werther. He has a new article on the Continental Navy Captain Lambert Wicks, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book, Daniel Morgan, A Revolutionary Life, available now. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. We have a wonderful show for you today. On this episode, Journal of the American Revolution writer Richard Werther joins us to discuss a new article on what he calls Gunboat Diplomacy, featuring the life of sailor Lambert Wicks. We get into some uh, pretty serious discussion this episode about the state of the Continental Navy at the outset of the American Revolution, as well as the role that individuals played in that Navy. This Navy was not the British Navy. This Navy was not the French Navy. Uh, It was something altogether different. It was a small collection of just a few dozen ships and vessels, much like the entire Patriot cause, thrown together uh, with whatever was available at the time. We also, in this episode, will be discussing the difference between a pirate and a privateer. And we'll see how early on in the American Revolution, the American Patriot naval force really skirted that line, depending who you were talking to. Lambert Wicks has an incredible life uh, spanning the globe, as we'll see, really in, uh, I think, what is the early sort of global nature of the war. A lot of our focus in 1775 and 1776 tends to be on uh, actions in Boston uh, and New York and Philadelphia. And yes, the war will become a global conflict as it heats up between Britain and France later. But a lot of these early exploits uh, by those in the Continental Navy, if you can call it a, a Navy at the time, really make this an international affair. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Richard Werther. Richard Werther, thank you for joining us. Well, Brady, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, well, I was born in New York City, grew up on uh, Long Island, and I've been living in Michigan now for the past uh, 27 years. Uh, My education was at Bucknell University, which is in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I was trained, uh, though not as an historian, as a CPA. Um, I went into uh, writing history after uh, 
I had a medical disability, which caused uh, my retirement from uh, from work. That gave me the time to uh, do some writing. So uh, because of my lack of uh, academic background in history, um, I was kind of uh, reticent to uh, try writing uh, history uh, on something like the journal. Uh, but uh, another writer who I made contact with in one of the message boards, Gary Shattuck, encouraged me to uh, to give it a shot. So uh, I hope it's worked out. Um, I've written about half a dozen or so articles for the journal, and uh, I've really been working on improving my writing, uh, storytelling, and uh, research abilities. The, the last one, the research, was something I had because uh, of uh, my accounting training. I had very little background on doing research, so that's been my biggest learning curve. What first drew your interest to the Continental Navy as a topic? Well, um, to, to step back a little bit, I've been interested in the Revolution and early American history for nearly 30 years. Um, my dad gave me a book one Christmas uh, that was uh, a book about the Revolution, and uh, I learned a lot of stuff in it that I had never understood before. And uh, being the curious person that I am, I kept reading books and uh, I read shelves full of books on this. Um, as far as uh, the Continental Navy, and this really centered around uh, Lambert Wicks, who was the subject of my article, he had a bit uh, part in uh, the first article I ever wrote for the JAR, which was uh, a story about William Bingham, who was uh, a person who was sent down to Martinique to uh, help uh, finance the, the army with supplies. Um, I was doing some general research, uh, looking around for ideas as, as I normally am. And, uh, I was reading a book called the diplomatic history of the American revolution. And, uh, it was an excellent book, by the way. Um, Wicks's name popped up a couple of times in there. And I remembered him from the earlier story, uh, on Bingham. So I decided to look into uh, his role and it turned out, uh, there was what I thought was a pretty good story there to tell. Could you talk about maybe the strength of the Continental Navy at the outset of the war? What was its status? <laughs> well, it wasn't much of a navy. Uh, I would I would say uh, as a navy, we had a pretty good merchant marine. Um, people like uh, John Adams recognized the need for a navy, I think, but... Uh, to build one from scratch in that short of time, it's going to be pretty hard to counter the, the British Navy, um, which was the best in the world. And we'll get into uh, what the size of, of that Navy was. But uh, we had about 24 commissions, captains and commanders starting out in 1777 in the Continental Navy. Wicks was uh, number 11 on the seniority list. Uh, Interestingly, uh, number 18 was a guy named uh, John Paul Jones. So that's uh, the way it laid out at the start. One of my favorite things about your article is that you pretty plainly state that to attack the British Navy head-on would be suicide. I think that's the word you use. What was so strong about the British Navy? Tell us about their numbers. Well, at the outset of the war, the British had the largest Navy uh, in the world. Uh, they had about 100 ships of the line, uh, ships which are defined, uh, as I understand it, as 50 to 100 uh, cannon. Uh, by comparison, France had uh, maybe around 60, and Spain maybe 50, and I don't think we had any. 
Uh, and the Wix article, I mentioned a story where uh, he was chasing a ship that uh, turned out uh, when he got close enough to to become a, he realized it was a British ship of the line and uh, he did a quick about face and tried to outrun it. And uh, he did make a hairbreadth escape on that one. Um, as far as uh, the suicidal aspect of it was, uh, it was a, really a pragmatic decision not to uh, challenge the British Navy head on. I think you can uh, apply similar thinking to how Washington was battling the uh, British Army. Um, survival was uh, really the key there to uh, live on to fight another day. You mentioned the name Lambert Wicks. His name appears in the title of your article. Tell us about his life. Yes, uh, Lambert Wicks was born uh, in 1735 in uh, Kent County, Maryland. He was the second of 12 children. That includes uh, uh, half-sisters and brothers. His father, uh, Benjamin, was a church elder and also a naval yard clerk. Um, he had an infamous uh, half-brother named Joseph Heinsohn, uh, who I also wrote a story about, uh, which is soon to appear in the journal, and I, I won't uh, do any spoilers as far as uh, what his story is, but uh, it's quite different from Lambert's. Um, Wicks himself was uh, a merchant ship captain whose first uh, claim to fame was that he refused, uh, when we had the tea crisis with the British, he refused to bring British tea into Baltimore, Others who did bring that tea in uh, had it burned in what was uh, a less celebrated tea party. Um, this uh, <clears throat> this uh, patriotic stance of not bringing in the tea kind of gave him the, the street cred, so to speak, uh, that led to his appointment to the Navy. Um, his cameo uh, that I mentioned in my first story was shuttling the main protagonist in that story, William Bingham, to Martinique. Uh, when Wicks got down there, uh, he found in, in the bay at Martinique uh, a British warship, and he engaged it in battle. And he was doing all right, but the battle ultimately was broken up by the British, by, by excuse me, the French shore batteries uh, firing on the British ship, uh, which of course uh, caused a lot of irritation with the British. Um, his good impression there landed him uh, an assignment to. Uh, to shuttle Franklin to France to join the Paris Peace Commission. Obviously, uh, that was an important assignment. So he was uh, very fortunate to get that. You mentioned gunboat diplomacy in your article. Uh, what was gunboat diplomacy and how did it apply during the American Revolution? Okay, well, gunboat diplomacy is a, is a common term, and I've probably used it a little loosely uh, for the definition. That's why I added to the end of it gunboat diplomacy revolutionary style, uh, because uh, what, I, what I meant by that was uh, Wicks and others were engaged in private privateering activities in European waters, which is something that uh, you probably wouldn't normally see from uh, a, a, quote, Navy. Um and it's somewhat questionable as to whether this was a legal, uh, legitimate activity for the Navy. And there was a little debate about this in the comment section to my article. Uh, if you go to the website, you can see that. Uh, as mentioned, uh, the Continental Navy kind of took a pragmatic approach given the disparity uh, they had in firepower with the British. Um, 
But but I would say that the exact legal status of uh, what they were doing in the law of nation, the laws of war, if there is such a thing, uh, probably was uh, somewhat debatable. Um, when I say that, when I use the word diplomacy, it comes in from the fact that uh, Wicks's assignment was to stir up conflict between the French and the British with the ultimate goal of driving the French to our side in the war. Um, he also, in capturing these prizes, was raising funds that were funneled into uh, providing military military supplies, which uh, were shipped uh, a lot of times with uh, the French cooperation and through French ports. So in that sense, it, his actions drove and uh, really were intended to drive diplomatic outcomes uh, in fact, one of his one of the biographies of Wicks is called uh, Lambert Wicks, Sea Raider and Diplomat. Um, he he was uh, pretty well aware of the role and played it to the hilt. Um, operating out of British ports as he was, he had to walk a thin line between uh, annoying the British, but uh, at the same time maintaining French neutrality. Um, after one successful voyage. Uh, Wicks wrote, our late cruise has made a great deal of noise and will probably soon bring on a war between the French and England, which is my sincere wish. So uh, he was he was quite aware of uh, what he was doing there. Uh, the French, for their part, um, tried to remain neutral and they alternately ignored, disclaimed knowledge of, explained away, or indignantly condemned but didn't take much action on British private American privateering activities that were coming out of their ports. But the British obviously were well aware of these. They had a lot of uh intelligence plants uh in the uh French delegation in the American delegation there in Paris. Um but the French were trying to maintain what we would call today as uh, plausible but deniability excuse me, plausible deniability. Um, they were also stalling for time, I think, to try to build chips to close the gap uh, in naval power. They weren't ready to drop their neutral neutrality just yet um, for that and uh, probably other reasons as well. Could you talk about some of the missions or maybe better yet exploits that Lambert Wicks participated in during his career? Well, his his primary job, as as we mentioned, was to get a very important person, Franklin, uh, to France. Um, Franklin understood, though, just as well as Wicks did, uh, what Wicks's ability, what his uh, assignment was, which was to mix things up. And uh, <clears throat> Frank, although he was uh, uh, he was told to uh, get Franklin there and all, with all due haste. Uh, he was given some opportunity um, with Franklin's approval to do some privateering on the way. And uh, Franklin uh, did give that approval and Wicks captured uh, two British merchant ships uh, on the way to dropping off Franklin. Um, that, that made Wicks uh, the first Continental Navy captain to capture uh, prizes in, in European waters. Um, additionally, uh, the, the bulk of his work was over the first half of 1777. Franklin was dropped off in uh, November, I think. And uh, in the first half of 1977, 1777, excuse me, uh, 
He conducted two voyages circumnavigating Ireland. The first was his ship, the Reprisal, alone, and the second one was was with a three-boat squadron of Colonial Navy vessels. Um, collectively, these voyages seized 23 ships. They didn't capture them all and take them all into port. A few of them they sunk, a few of them they let go for various reasons. Uh, they also pursued many more and really uh, were a monkey wrench in uh, in the British trade at the time, uh, the linen trade, for example, was was crippled by uh, by their activities and the threat that they they posed uh, to the people along the coast there. Um, the the first voyage that Wicks made alone resulted uh, in his ejection from France. So uh, the French couldn't couldn't uh, with the straight face maintain a. a picture of neutrality, keeping Wicks there, but uh, he evaded that deadline. Uh, he claimed that the reprisal had uh, leaks and wasn't seaworthy. Um, he had some carpenters uh, sign a certificate to certify that, and uh, the legend has it that he also had water pump into the hold of the ship to simulate a leak. So uh, eventually, uh, he kind of killed time there and was able to stay and, and complete the second voyage. And on the second voyage uh, was what I described earlier, where they uh, were casing a ship and it turned out to be a British warship. And uh, they did the quick reverse. And uh, to lighten the reprisal, uh, Wicks had all his uh, cannons thrown overboard and uh, additionally sawed uh, some beams out of the, the hole and uh, he was able to lighten up enough to where he could uh, win a very long uh, chase and, and get into the French port. So those were some of the adventures they went through. You've stated many times through this interview that Lambert Wicks was a privateer. Now, anyone who knows anything about the 18th century knows that privateer really just means pirate. Uh, were the British correct to believe that this man's actions were an act of piracy? rather than legitimate naval attacks? Well, um, I'm not sure if they uh, technically would have been legally correct. As, as we mentioned uh, earlier, the definitions were a little fuzzy on that, but, uh, you know, privateering and pi piracy have always been uh, pretty closely related, and it's kind of uh, which side of the transaction you're, you're on. And uh, I have no doubt the British would have uh, seen it as piracy, from their partisan point of view. And uh, it probably had good propaganda value for them too, to say that uh, the Americans uh, were, were committing uh, piracy uh, on their shipping. And uh, I have no doubt that if uh, Wicks had been captured, he, w he probably would have been hung as a pirate. What do you think the ultimate legacy of Lambert Wicks's life and participation in the American Revolution should be? Well, when you talk about... Uh, the, the Continental Navy, uh, John Paul Jones is really the benchmark uh, for naval fame as far as that goes. Um, but uh, I was able to pull up a quote from one his historian who said, uh, had Wicks lived, he might have outshone his more celebrated colleague, John Paul Jones. And of the two, it could be argued that Wicks was more courageous for he, for he conducted his pioneering raids Unlike Jones, he had no guarantee uh, 
a safe port in France. Ricks paved the way for Jones. Today, Jones is far more widely remembered, and in the context of the U.S. Navy's whole history, that is right. But at the time, Wicks' contribution to the immediate cause of American independence was far greater. Um, that ends a quote. Um, I think that's a pretty accurate assessment. Um, when uh, you find these unrecognized or underappreciated characters uh, in the revolution, you tend to want to elevate them. Uh, and I try to be a little conservative as far as that goes, uh, you know. Uh, he didn't. He didn't survive uh, when when the French sent the ships uh, back to uh, America. Um, the the reprisal was lost over Newfoundland in the storm, and uh, Wicks died. Uh, he went down with the ship. So uh, we don't know uh, what would have happened uh, uh, if uh, he would have exceeded the exploits of Jones, or if they might have done some stuff uh, working together as a team. But uh, you know, that, that's history. Some people uh, make it through and some don't. Uh, I would just say his legacy uh, would be one as a brave man who did his part to drive uh, the French into American arms, and that really helped us uh, win the war. Uh, the Navy itself uh, has a good legacy for him. It commissioned uh, a couple of vessels uh, in his name, uh, one each in World Wars One and Two. So uh, he has a legacy there. Uh, if not uh, in the popular awareness anyway. Richard Werther, thank you for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Thank you.